But like I said, we're in Judges today. The book of. And uh, so this is after Joshua. Joshua has led everybody into the promised land and they have fought these these fights and these battles and all kinds of crazy violence. And now Joshua is getting old and they've taken the promised land. They even stopped at one point. Remember Caleb at the end of the book of Joshua said, hey, Joshua, I'm 80 years old, but I can still fight like I could 40 years ago. And you didn't take all this land. There was all this land up there that we still got to take. And I don't care if it's mountains and I don't care if it's full of giants. God said we could take it. And Joshua said, go for it. (laughs) And Caleb did it. And he took the land and he killed all those giants. And all that land was his. And... um, so the whole book of Joshua can be summed, or the whole book of Judges can be summed up like this. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's terrible. It says that about three times. It says that exact phrase. At this time, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And, um, and it, doesn't, it doesn't work out good. So the whole book of Judges is this... Oh, wait. So Exodus, what Genesis, a people are made, right? Adam and Eve are created. This family is made, this family of Abraham. And the family of Abraham and the descendants of Abraham go down to Egypt through Joseph. Joseph goes ahead of them and brings all of them and provides for them. And then that's how the book of Genesis ends. Exodus All of these people have multiplied, 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 and they're all slaves thoroughly dispersed throughout Egypt. And in the book of Exodus, God draws out. It's almost like um, if I had, you know, if I had a net or if I had a weaving and I just grabbed this blue thread and I pulled it and I pulled all the blue thread out of this quilt all at once and left the quilt there to fall apart. That's what Exodus is. God is drawing his people out of Egypt and making them his people. So the people are made in Genesis. All mankind is made. They're narrowed down to this family, this, uh, this dynasty sort of, family ha- household of Jacob. Exodus, they're drawn out of the world to be God's very own people, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel. And then in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is the, here's how you're going to be my people. Here's how this is going to work. And then judges his people, Joshua. I wonder how many times I'm going to flip that back and forth. Joshua, his people that he's made to be his are put in their place where God wants them to be. And then the book of Judges, the whole book of Uh, What happened between Genesis and Exodus, where all the people dispersed out into all the land, that's what happens in Judges. So that by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, all of the people that were drawn out in Exodus 
are thoroughly watered down and spread out and diluted all over. It's still the promised land, and, but it, they're just diluted in with all of the people that were already there by the end of the book of Judges. And what was this beautiful blue thread that got pulled out in Exodus has kind of faded in the laundry and it's taken on the colors of the other laundry in it so that by the end of the book of Judges, you can't tell who's Jewish and who's Canaanite. You can't tell who is Israel and who's just Palestinian. Kind of like today, some parts, right? So that's what Judges, that's what Judges is. Judges is just, God wanted them to be this nation of nations, the apple of his eye of all nations. And they mixed in and And it's not just a racial thing. Um, Race represents their their religion and the gods they serve. So this isn't about racism. This is about staying holy and staying true to God. And that's where they all disperse. So they mix in. They chase after all these foreign people. Um, Judges chapter 2, verse 1, is where you get the first sort of rule from God in the book of Judges. It says, The Lord's angel went up from Gilgal to Bochim. He said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I led you into the land I had solemnly promised to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. They, the people get to hear from this messenger from God. Yes, that's what he said. And they pretty much break it over and over again from here on out. Chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the Israelites went to their allotted portions of territory, intending to take possession of the land. So it's kind of like, there's still some Canaanites here. There's not very many. We've beat them all so bad. Now we have control of the water. We have control of the food. We have control of all the animals and all the natural resources. So when we send you back to your corner your little corner of the promised land, if there's anybody left there, you're going to beat them easy. Just don't worry. Just, just go beat them yourself. I mean, it's no big deal. The people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and as long as the elderly men who outlived him remained alive. So all the guys in Joshua's generation, remember there was only two, Joshua and Caleb, all the old guys after him, so that'd be the next generation, These men had witnessed all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. These were the people that were kids that were too young to fight when Joshua was leading all these battles. So the kids that were too young to fight but saw it all, whoa, and heard the stories. You know, their dads come back with all this plunder and giant grapes and fruit. Dad, what did you do? Oh, we fought these giants. And, you know, they hear all the stories. Chapter 2, verse 8. Joshua, son of Nun, the Lord's servant, died at the age of 110. The people buried him in his allotted land in Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. That entire generation passed away, and a new generation grew up that had not personally experienced the Lord's presence or had seen what he had done for Israel. That's the saddest sentence in the whole Bible, I think. A new generation grew up that had not personally experienced the Lord's presence 
or seen what he had done for Israel. This is the generation after Joshua. So everything, the Exodus, the whole book of Numbers, all of the giving of the law, the Red Sea, the ten plagues, none of these people had experienced any of that. And somehow, through celebrating, we assume that you know they celebrate the Passover every year, they just didn't get it. It didn't get passed on. The next verse is kind of like the chorus of the book of Judges, because it's going to repeat over and over and over again. The Israelites did evil before the Lord by worshiping the Baals. They abandoned the Lord God of their ancestors who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods, the gods of the nations who lived around them. They worshiped them and made the Lord angry. They abandoned the Lord and they worshiped Baal and the Ashtoreths. Baal and the Ashtoreths is not a band. It looks like the name of a band. Um, Baal was a generic name. It's a generic Hebrew word for a false god. So there isn't a specific... You can look it up on the internet and you can look in books and they'll be like, this is Baal. And okay, that's a Baal. Because Baal is... You know how uh, the word God is we might talk about God like that's his name, but God is also just a label, the lower G God for any deity, right? Whether it exists or not. Kind of like dad. My kids call me dad with a capital D, but I am a dad, but you're a dad, right? So Baal is like that. So when you see Baal, it'll be with a capital B and they'll be naming it, but it's also just a general term for any of those false gods. So the people get oppressed by a local ruler that they were supposed to kill off and they didn't. And instead they blend in and they do the, uh, well, they could have beaten them, but instead they joined them and they take on you know, what they're doing. They take on their practices and, the, and their paganism. And then they realize this is terrible. We shouldn't be doing this. This is awful. And they cry out to the Lord and the Lord sends them a judge. And so there's 12 judges in the book of Judges. Kind of fun. And I'm going to just, we're, we're going to like skip like a rock across a lake. And we're just going to talk about a few of them and what they did. And then next week we're going to camp out all Sunday on one of them, and then the next Sunday we're going to camp out on another one, and then we'll be done with the book of Judges. Does that make sense? All right, so the first one to come along was Othniel. You want to talk uh, Bible trivia, you can score a lot if you know the names of these judges. So, Othniel, Judges chapter 3, verse 9, when the Israelites cried out for help to the Lord, he raised up a deliverer for the Israelites. His name was Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Oh, now wait a minute. Caleb's younger brother. So Caleb was the guy that said, there's still mountains, there's still uh, giants in those mountains and we haven't killed them. Let me go kill them. I don't care if I'm 80 years old. So dude is tough, right? This is his little brother and Tough big brothers have tough little brothers. 
Believe me, I know. Ask Levi. Tough. That, that is who Othniel is. He is the son of Caleb's little brother. So his uncle was Caleb. Now Othniel. The Lord's spirit empowered him and he led Israel. He went to do battle. The Lord handed over to him King Cushan, Rishathaim of Armon, and he overpowered him. So Othniel was just tough, and he, the Lord was upon him, and he beat the bad guys. The land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So they would cry out to the Lord. The Lord would send a judge empower them they'd have like a a revolution or a revolt basically and they would have victory and they would praise god thank you lord for the victory all right let's go over to the Baal temple and sacrifice our children and get back to the way of business and they would go back right after that 40 years later it only lasted 40 years judges chapter three this is one of my favorites ehud Ehud is a bad dude. Judges chapter 3, verse 15. When the Israelites cried out to help to the Lord, he raised up a deliverer for them. Remember how I said this is like a chorus. It's like there's a verse, and then they sing the chorus again. Then there's a different verse. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. I'll tell you what, there's a couple places in here where they mention left-handed. And whenever they mention somebody's left-handed, you just get ready. It's, it's, they're tough. They're bad news. The Israelites sent him to King Eglon of Moab with their tribute payment. So basically the Israelites start worshiping false gods. The ruler of the land that controls those says, if you're going to come worship in my temple, you got to pay me taxes. And they're like, okay, we'll pay you taxes because we want to go worship this horrid, wicked beast. And so they pay taxes to this king Eglon of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword. It had two edges and was 18 inches long. So this sucker is like this big. And it is not a, uh, it's not a machete. Because it only has a machete only has a blade on one side, right? And it has a back. You know a butter knife? Like a butter knife has a back to it and the cut part? This is double-edged. This is for cutting in both directions. And uh, so if you're an oppressive king and you're trying to rule over everybody, do you think you're going to let your little people that you're oppressing have weapons? Heck No! So they wouldn't have any blacksmiths, so they wouldn't have any way to make these things or to buy these things. So that's why it's significant. He made his own. It's also significant. How long would it take? Like, it's not like he just goes in and, you know, pops a freeze-dried sword into the microwave and hits it for a minute and pulls out a sword. He has to build a forge. He has to get the metal. He has to, you know, blacksmith this thing. So it's taking time. He's not just acting in a fit of rage. He is, he is planning this all out. Ehud made himself a sword. This is uh, chapter 3, verse 16. It had two edges. It was 18 inches long. And he strapped it under his coat on his right thigh. 
he brought the tribute payment to King Eglon of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Okay, so we got to review a couple things here. So he's left-handed, so he puts it under his right thigh, okay? In that day, when you walked through security, they didn't have a beeper. They just asked you to show any weapons you have. And they assume everybody's right-handed. So you show, you know, your robe, and you have no weapons, And so you're all clear and you can go through. That's why it's significant that he was left-handed and he keeps his sword on his right thigh because they didn't didn't even think to check that side. Then it says Eglon was a very fat man. So it's not just, you know, an ad for Weight Watchers here or something. When, when, think through, Eglon is a fat man. How did he get fat off of the taxes that he was charging Israel? There's another place in the scripture where it refers to a man who was very fat. And that was Eli, the, the priest in the time of Samuel. And Eli's sons were corrupt and they were, they were sleeping with women that would bring offerings in and they would steal the food that was supposed to be offered to God and eat it themselves. And so there it's another time. It's, it's a sign of corruption. It's a sign of uh, stealing from people. It's a, it's a symbol of injustice. Because Eglon is fat while the Israelites are suffering. It's a, it's a contrast thing. It's a justice thing. I'm not saying he's not fat, but that's why they point that out. To point out the injustice. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. After Ehud brought the tribute payment, see that how they mentioned the tribute payment right there after mentioning that he's fat? It's like, here's why. He dismissed the people who had carried it. So he comes with an entourage of people. They all go to King Eglon. They're like, here, O king. Oh, yeah, I don't have a sword on me. I'm unarmed. Here is your tribute payment. And they all leave. And then Eglon, or, uh, Ehud says, you guys go on back without me. I'm going to go, I, I got something else I'm, I'm going to check on. You guys go on. So Ehud sends them all on. And he comes back. He comes back to, to the king and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king says, everyone be quiet. Everyone out. He orders everyone out. Chapter 3, verse 20. If you've ever watched a movie, you know what's going to happen, right? Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the sword from his right thigh, and drove it into Eglon's belly. The handle went in after the blade, and the fat closed around the blade, and Ehud did not pull the sword out. I told you, it's going to be gross. Sinks that sword in there. The handle went in after the blade, the fat closed... uh, Yeah, I already said that part. (laughs) As Ehud went... so, So Eglon is dead. Right? Deader than dead. Ehud goes out into the vestibule. He closed the doors of the upper room and he locks them. And then he leaves and he sneaks out. When Ehud had left, Eglon's servants came and saw the doors were locked. They said, oh, he must be relieving himself in the well-ventilated inner room. Isn't that funny? Guess that's the thing he did. They waited so long they were embarrassed. So they're waiting outside. How long is he going to be in there? 
He still didn't open the rooms. Finally, they went and got the key. They opened the doors, and there before their eyes is their master sprawled out dead on the floor. Ah! Sound the alarm, right? All this time, Ehud has been escaping and getting away. He escaped. While they were delaying, he passed these carved images on the end of town. He reaches, he makes it all the way to Syria, and he blows a trumpet in the Ephraimite hill country. And it was not common. Like a trumpet blast, that meant something. That was, oh man, something's going on. And they all come to him, and they're like, what's going on? And he says, Ephraim, side behind me. Today is the day of our deliverance. And they form an army up, and they line up, and they kill off a whole bunch of Moabites. And it's basically a revolution all over again. And this is just exactly how it went. One judge would stand up and do something awesome or gruesome or both. They'd sound the trumpet and everybody would be like, yeah, God has given us, you know, God has freed us. The Lord has heard our cry and they would kill off a whole bunch of their oppressors and then they would have peace in the land. I think under Ehud, um, I think they had like 80 years. It, was, it went from like 40 to 80 under Ehud and after all that. Remember, all these people that they fight in these wars and these revolutions, they were supposed to go wipe out under Joshua. They were supposed to get it done then. And they just, they, they, didn't, they didn't want it. They didn't seek after the Lord. So, now the chorus. There was no king in Israel, so everybody did what they wanted. They uh, praised God that they were delivered from their oppressor. And then they went back to serving the Baals and the Ashtaroths and all that nonsense. And it is a caution to us, right? Anytime you turn away from God to serve other things, that will become your master. Whatever you serve, whatever you serve is your master. Whatever you desire most. I think... This is why um, there's so much scripture about if you search for me, you know, Jeremiah 29, if you search for me, you'll find me. And when Jesus talks about if you ask, it'll be given to you. If you seek, you will find it. There's so much set up in our identity with what we seek, with what we want. We don't really, we don't always identify ourselves and we don't stake our identity on what we've achieved unless it was something that took a long time to get it, right? I'm a gold medal winner. I won an Olympic gold medal. Like if I say that, you know, gosh, he must have really trained for a long time to become that. So Jesus knew so much of our identity would be tied up in what we're seeking after and what we want and what we're longing for that he would say it's coming to Jesus, being a Christian, A life of faith is a continual seeking and looking and finding and discovering. There's not a checkbox. All right, I'm a Christian now. I can just watch TV. I can just binge watch Netflix all I want now because I'm a Christian. It's a constant finding new things, discovering more, talking to others, growing. Otherwise... You know, I think I'll settle in on here and, and serve this thing. Nobody ever says that, right? Nobody ever says, now I'm going to serve bonsai trees. 
No, you just get more and more into it, more and more into it, more and more into it until it becomes your whole thing. Shamgar. Am I just talking nonsense? Or am I saying that that'd be a fun game to play? Is it a nonsense word or is it a judge? Shamgar. Shamgar is one of the awesomest dudes, but he only gets one verse in the whole Bible. You got no descriptions. If you look online and you see entire half hour or hour long sermons on Shamgar, just don't even listen to it. It's nonsense because it's only one verse. After Ehud came Shamgar, the son of Anath. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And so he delivered Israel. An ox goad is a stick with a point on the end. Dude was brutal. 600 Philistines with an ox goad. All right. Deborah. Is it a book of Judges or is it a nonsense name? No, it's not nonsense. So Deborah is an interesting judge. She, um, for one, she's a woman. She's the only woman judge. For two, she's the only judge that did all of her stuff just as an advisor. She didn't do the actual killing or the actual fighting or the actual, she was just a, um, she just gave wisdom. It's really wild when you look at like the ways that Moses led, there's a lot of times that Moses wasn't swinging the sword. He was leading by giving wisdom and counsel. And sometimes that would end in sword slinging, but other times it would end in God working a miracle. So here's Deborah. She's introduced in Judges 4.4 as a prophetess. So what's really cool is Several, I mean, a couple hundred years have gone by since Joshua, right? We don't have any depiction, we don't have any description in here of the Levites serving in the temple. We don't have a description of Passovers. We don't have a description of any offerings or the Day of Atonement. We can assume those things are happening, but we don't have any details of them happening for all this time. But God still raises up prophets, not just judges. God is still speaking to the people, even though they don't want to listen. He's still showing them that kind of mercy. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She would sit under the date palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the Ephraimite hill country. And the Israelites would come up to her to have their disputes settled. I always love this. It's not like she was some rebellious woman that, uh, like Jezebel that was taking over everything. She was a prophetess. She was serving God. She's married. She's got a husband. I mean, she doesn't have to do this. to make. She's not trying to get money out of people. This is God's calling, and this is how God is leading Israel and how God is using her. So there she is. She summoned Barak, son of Abinoam from Kedash. And she said to him, Is it not true that the Lord God of Israel is commanding you? How crazy is that? So, in the book of Judges, God calls these men to do things, right? And apparently, maybe, it could just be the way they say it, but it could be actually this way. 
that God was calling Barak to do something and Barak wasn't doing it. So God speaks through Deborah, the prophetess, and she sends a message to him and she says, isn't God calling you? Are you going to do this or not? How awesome is that, right? What if you had a thing and you're praying about it and you didn't know? Um, I've, done this, I've done this just a few times where I, I had a decision to make. Should I do this or this? And so I ask a few people to pray for me, but I don't tell them what decision I'm making. And I don't tell them what my options are. And I just say, I have to make a decision. Will you pray for me to make the right decision? And guess what? I don't get all their advice and I don't get all their wisdom about this or that. All of a sudden, they have to just depend on the Lord. And then they give me an answer. I don't know if this relates to it, but this and this. And that's exactly what what I needed. So that's, that's kind of what's going on here. So, go, march to Mount Tabor. So this is Deborah talking to Barak. Go to Mount Tabor. Take 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun. These are the two tribes. I will bring Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to you, and you'll have a big fight, and I'll hand him over to you. So she's saying, Barak, get your army, meet here. God's going to bring Sisera to meet you there, and God will give you the victory, and you will fight, and you will win, and you'll beat our oppressors. Barak. Now, wouldn't that just be one of those things that you would hear that and you'd be like, yes, Lord, that is just what I needed to hear. Here I am. Send me. Let's go. Poor Barak. He says, if you go with me, I'll go. If you hold my hand, I'll go do this fight. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Now, to his credit, there's a whole bunch of witch doctors and soothsayers worshiping false gods around here, right? And this could just be a test of him to say, are you going to put your money where your mouth is? Do you really think God is sending? If you think God's sending me to beat this guy, then you won't be afraid to go with me. <laughs> and then she answers back, I will go with you. But because of this little game you're playing here, you will not gain fame on the expedition you are undertaking, she says. The Lord will turn Sisera over to a woman. I will go with you, but you will not get the glory for this battle. God is going to give Sisera into the hands of a woman. And then they get up and they go. Now, what's cool is you think about, I mean, I think about how arrogant and prideful and self-seeking I am. I read that and I think, oh, she's going to do it. She's going to do it herself. She's going to take this army and Barak's going to lead the army, and then Deborah is going to get to do an Ehud or a Shamgar and just kill these dudes, right? Nope. So they make a couple little mentions, and, and it's awesome to read the book of Judges with a map or with some tracing paper over your map so you can make marks of where these people are. There's this guy that was Jewish, and he was like, man, everybody's getting a little crazy. They're worshiping Baals and Ashtoreths. I don't want to be a part of all this. I'm going to go up here to this place. And he goes and he kind of takes his whole family and he goes off to this separate place. Now there's a foreign, a guy that worships foreign gods there. And he's like, hey, you're on my territory. He's like, look, can I make a treaty with you? I won't fight your people. You don't fight my people. You let me be. I'll let you be. Everything's cool. He's like, okay. 
So he's up here in this area. So Sisera comes and fights against Barak. The army of Sisera, they have iron chariots. They have, they have uh, so many more sophisticated weapons than Barak has. But Barak, God is with him, and they just wipe out all of these Sisera troops. And they're running, and they're fleeing. And Sisera is running, and guess where he runs to? This Israelite guy that went to live up in the hills, separate from the Baal-worshipping Israelites. And Sisera knows them, and he comes into the tent. And this is in uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Sisera ran away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For King Jabin of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite had made a peace treaty. But Sisera is not a part of that peace treaty. Oh, you know what's going to happen. Jael came out to welcome Sisera. She said, stop and rest, my lord. Stop and rest with me. Don't be afraid. So Sisera stopped to rest in her tent, and she put a blanket over him. He said to her, give me a little water to drink. I'm thirsty. She opened a goatskin container of milk and gave him some milk to drink. Then she covered him up again. I mean, that'd be like fortifying. That's like drinking a protein shake. It's like a meal. He said to her, stand watch at the entrance to the tent. If anyone comes along and asks you, is there a man here? Say no. Then jail. Oh, so she's going to cover for him. He's going to lay down here and take a nap, right? Got his protein shake. His whole army's been decimated by the God of Israel. He's fine. Chapter 4, verse 21. Then Jael, wife of Haber, took a tent peg, a tent peg, in one hand and a hammer in the other. She crept up to him and she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground while he was asleep from exhaustion and he died. Wow. Tell your boys never to date a girl named Jael. Now, Barak was chasing Sisera. Barak is, you know, running after him. And he comes up and Jael goes out to meet him. And she says, come here, I'll show you the man you're looking for. And he goes in with her to the tent. And there he saw Sisera sprawled out dead with the tent peg stuck through his head. Wow. The prophecy of Deborah. You will go and you will fight, but the glory of this fight will fall on a woman, not you. And so now Barak goes back to Israel and he's like, we beat Sisera. And they're like, did you kill him? He's like, well, actually, you remember Jael? Don't mess with her. And so Israel had peace for another number of years. And um, after a while, you know what happens? They worship other gods and all that business. And, um, and they fall right back into it. I'm just, I'm not going to skim, I'm not going to go over all of them. It's a really cool thing to read. All of Judges chapter 5 is Deborah's song. Deborah and Barak sing a song rejoicing in the Lord. And just celebrating all that, all that he did. And... Um, That's like all of chapter five. And then, of course, chapter six, verse one, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to Midian for seven years. 
And it's at this point, I'm going to stop because we're getting into Gideon. But um, with all of these judges, it's crazy and it's violent and it's terrible. And when you look back at Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you see how God is instructing the people how they should live and how they should be, it's none of this stuff. They're so, they are so mixed in and they're so like the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Medianites that all of the things that made them Jewish, that made them different. Um, I mean, we're in Judges 6 and they haven't mentioned a Passover and they haven't mentioned uh, any temple worship. They haven't mentioned any of the, you know, greetings or any, I mean, any of the stuff that they did that made them Jewish. They, they haven't been doing. They've been, um, so that's what the big deal, when it says they married their daughters off, they gave their daughters off to them. What they were doing was they were giving their daughters into these families that worshiped false gods. And in order to do that, the two dads are making agreements that they should have never made, right? Remember in, in Genesis, when, um, Oh, Reuben and Simeon. So they, they come upon this pagan city and they're like, we want to marry. Uh, they, they, they take Dinah, one of the daughters, and they, they do a bunch of bad stuff with her. And Reuben and Simeon, they're like, oh, we got to have revenge. They've taken Dinah from us. And they're like, we'll marry with you. You just, all you guys get circumcised and, and we'll marry with all of you. We'll mix right in. And then uh, Reuben and Simeon go and they just wipe out the whole city and they kill them all. That wasn't about revenge. I mean, it was a little bit about revenge, but it was about trying to keep this family of Israel, this family of, of sons of Jacob, pure and focused on God and following God. Because God knew as soon as you start to get distracted, you're going to get off course. The other cool thing is not that they would be the children of Israel and they would be God's chosen people so they could continue killing everybody and wiping out everybody till only Israel is left. Because we know like from Isaiah, you'll be my light to all the nations. That's all the Gentiles. See, God made the Jewish people his people and gave them a way of life so they'd be attractive. Not so that they would go and mix with the Canaanites, but so that people would come to them and be like, I'm going to quit sacrificing my children to Baal. I want to follow the one living God. I'm going to quit all these horrendous, horrible practices, and I'm going to follow the living God. So God sends them out into the world, not so they'll mix in and become like them, but so they'll stand out and be different and draw people to them. Is this relevant today? It couldn't be more relevant, right? God sends us out into the world with this power from Him and, and this, this way of life that's from Him. And it's not to empower us to beat those people that are wrong and to show them how wrong they are. And... Eh, eh, eh. But it's to just be ourselves and all of a sudden people are like, man, you're awesome. Can I be like you? What can I do? Like, what, what are you doing right now that, that's so cool? Why, why is it like that, 
right? Why do you do this thing or that thing? Uh, a lady yesterday on our street, she pulls up, me and the neighbor guy are out there talking, and she gets out of her car, and she lives a few doors down, but she was driving by, and she's like, can you guys help me? My, I, I, I have middle school children that won't get out from behind the video games, and I want to do something with them. What, do, do you guys know what I do? Well, why did she ask that? Because our kids are all outside. It's visible. You can see it. I didn't yell at that lady and say, you let your kids play too many video games. Would that have done any good? Would she have even listened to me? So here we are. Christ is in us to be a light to the nations. And as long as we don't give in and mix in. So yesterday, after all my leaf raking, I wanted to drink an ale eight. Do you know what an ale eight is? It's this Western Kentucky ginger ale lemon soda. And it's yummy and there's not caffeine in it. And I went out and I sat on the front porch and I took a swig of my ale eight and I realized it looked just like a Heineken. (laughs) And there's all these boys walking down the street and there's all these dudes in our neighborhood and I'm trying to be a light to them and to show them, you know, what a good Christian man is. I was like, I, I want to drink this, but I do not want to drink it on my front porch. I got right back up out of my rocking chair and I went back inside and I sat on the dining room table and I got a cup of coffee. But I was paying attention and I'm, you know, I'm not the hero of my own story, but uh, we, there's stuff that we're doing that people are watching us And as we are mindful of, I don't want to do this because this is what the Canaanites do. I don't want to do it like this because this is what the people of this land do. And I'm supposed to be taking this land. And the best way to take the land isn't with a big Ehud sword and a fat belly. But it's these people. Remember the Queen of Sheba? Queen of Sheba heard how awesome Solomon was. And she came to hear him. Now, Solomon could have conquered her land easy with an army. But instead, he conquered her soul with wisdom from God. And she left believing in the God of Israel. Isn't that wild? So, it's going to get more violent. Actually, it's not. It's going to lighten up. Today was all the bad stuff. But that's how... That's how God was doing it, but that is not, I mean, God even says in here, that's not the way he wanted to do it. He had to, he had to function that way because that's how the people were functioning. But he wants Israel, he wants his people to be a light that draws people to them, that they would leave what they're doing and change themselves and, and quit and come to him so he can change them. Um, not just a bunch of swords and non ox goads and all that stuff. All right, let's pray. Lord, do it. Shine your light in us, Jesus, and use us to show off your glory and your grace. Even in our failures, Lord, help us to show off how you are a God who forgives and that you are a God that loves no matter what as we turn to you. I praise you, Lord, for the victories that you give us every day. I praise you for the mercy that you show us as we struggle. And I pray that you would 
Help us to see where we're serving false gods, where we're becoming slaves to nonsense, and that you would liberate us and send, send deliverers. Um, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to, to know what we need to quit doing and to know what we need to focus on and run after you just to show you off more, Jesus. We love you so much. Amen. All right. Let's stand and sing 387 together.